what is the best Vader scene, the best Darth Vader scene of all time? And is there a way to write Vader as a scarier character, one that frightens the audience more? We're talking about that and digging deeper into episode three of Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+. Plus. This will be a spoiler-filled show. If you haven't seen episode three of Obi-Wan Kenobi, you might want to watch or listen to this show after you have seen that episode. Welcome to the Story Geek Show. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers. By the way, the full cast audiobook version, that is... 14 different characters voiced by 11 different super talented voice performers. The full cast version of Death of a Bounty Hunter is now available either via our website, on Audible, on audiobooks.com, on Downpour, on Apple Books. Basically everywhere you can purchase an audiobook, you can probably find Death of a Bounty Hunter. Please support the show by purchasing a copy. Links are down in the description below or go to deathofabountyhunter.com for more information. Now, since I'm really passionate about storytelling, I just spent a bunch of time promoing my new audiobook. Let's talk about that some more as it relates to Obi-Wan Kenobi episode three and specifically some of the Vader stuff as well. This is my third day in a row talking to friends, talking to you about Obi-Wan Kenobi. We started out with episode one uh, on Wednesday with Megan Salinas. We went to episode two with the fellas from Orange Grove 55, and now we are getting into episode three, and it's just me, it's just a solo episode here um, for today, and I'm gonna get really deep into some of these storytelling elements that I have recognized. If you have any storytelling questions or wanna know how something kind of works from a storytelling standpoint, just go ahead and leave those in the comments down below, and I will get to them either on this show or on a future show if you're not watching live. Now, every episode of this series of Obi-Wan Kenobi has taken us to a new planet, which is really fascinating. It doesn't always happen in shows, kind of happening in The Mandalorian a little bit. And episode three of Obi-Wan Kenobi now takes us to the mining planet of Mapuzo. This is where Obi-Wan and Leia are supposed to meet Haja's contact in order to get smuggled back to Alderaan at some point in time. And Obi-Wan is still trying to connect with Qui-Gon as the opening scene, um, as the scene, the whole episode opens up. He's sort of praying to Qui-Gon in a way, praying uh, to Qui-Gon's force ghost. <laughs> and this episode is essentially Obi-Wan and Leia trying to find Haja's contact and then get off the planet. So scale of one to 10 here, what do I think of Obi-Wan Kenobi episode three? It is my favorite episode thus far of the series. Um, I had episode one at an eight out of 10, episode two at an eight out of 10. I thought those were about the same. They were very different kinds of episodes, but I thought they were both done, you know, well enough. Um, this one gets scores a little bit higher for me. I think it's, there's a little bit more going on here. Well, there's a little bit less going on in terms of setup and there's a little bit more going on in terms of conflict. So I give this one an eight and a half out of 10. Maybe at times it actually reaches a nine out of 10. This is a very good episode of television and I liked it quite a bit. Um, let's get into some of the things that I loved about this episode. Uh, the first is Obi-Wan's character development and his, his emotions, specifically his fear, are handled so well in both the writing and in Ewan's acting. 
It's really fantastic. He's snapping at Leia. You'll notice the subtleties of it. I've seen the show three times now. You'll, you'll notice the subtleties of it when you watch more often. He's snapping at Leia. He's consistently doubting himself throughout the episode. He doesn't even want to, when he pulls out his lightsaber for the first time, he does not even want to turn it on. That's how emotionally overwhelmed that Obi-Wan actually is. And when he does start to use his lightsaber, he's lost all of his old prowess. This guy used to be a super talented Jedi Knight, Jedi Master even, and uh, he doesn't have that anymore. He does not have any of his skills um, pertaining to that. We saw him use the Force in Episode 2 to make sure that Leia didn't, you know, smack herself onto the ground falling from the from the building. And... Um, and we see here that his lightsaber skills, so his use of the force and his lightsaber skills are very, very rusty at best. But Ewan plays this um, essentially perfectly throughout this thing. Ewan McGregor does such a fantastic job. So really like that about um, Obi Obi-Wan's character and, and what he was going through. We talked a little bit um, in episode one of this series. We talked a little bit with Megan about how Luke Skywalker shows up and how Obi-Wan shows up. And I've seen a couple people kind of commenting a little bit more on how they don't love how, uh, you know, one of their heroes is now showing up in a way that doesn't seem as heroic. He seems like a broken guy as opposed to a conquering hero. But I do think that while people did complain about that pertaining to Luke Skywalker, that was different because the last time we had seen Luke Skywalker on screen... He was he was a beast of a Jedi. He was amazing. He was on his way to becoming um, and a really amazing Jedi master. That's not true of the last time we saw Obi-Wan. The last time we saw Obi-Wan, he was having to retreat. Everything was crumbling down around him. So there is a reason that Obi-Wan is nerfed of his powers, right? That he's not as intense as he used to be. Whereas I don't think that there was as much foreshadowing that of that with Luke Skywalker, which is why I think some of those complaints, while I didn't have those complaints, I do think some of those complaints could be more valid because we don't have, we don't see where the character was left off in a dark place. And so when we're given that new character of Luke and he's so flippant about throwing his old lightsaber and things like that, I think that it's a little bit easier for us to say, well, that's kind of frustrating. How did he get here? And they only give us a few scenes here and there about how he got there. Whereas with Obi-Wan, I think I mean, basically, you can make an argument that Obi-Wan should be completely nerfed. I mean, he's not a guy. He he saw the entire Jedi Council crumble down around him and saw the Empire take over. So I don't think that that would give him a lot of confidence in terms of his Jedi skills. Um, I also love the appearance of Indira Varma, who um, was on Game of Thrones. She was amazing on Game of Thrones. She here plays a... Um, she's basically impersonating an Imperial officer. I uh, thought she did a fantastic job. Deborah Chow's directing choices were really, really good here. There's a couple of storytelling kind of moments that we're going to talk about in a little bit that I thought were an interesting choice that I would have probably done differently, but it doesn't mean they were bad. It's just I would have done them different differently. And I especially loved her choices with this opening scene. So the opening scene where he's essentially sort of like praying to Qui-Gon and trying to connect with Qui-Gon's force ghosts, that opening sequence where they just pull up onto um, Ben Kenobi was really, I thought, really powerful and really well done. So Deborah Chow is, is doing a great job here. Um, I also really enjoyed the inclusion of Freck. I thought that was really cool because, because 
we do not often see alien species who side with and appreciate the Empire. And so I thought seeing that perspective, it makes the Star Wars universe more nuanced. The idea that the Empire is providing some order and that for some people on some planets, they needed more order in their lives um, and that the, the Empire has been somewhat helpful to them in their personal life. That's an interesting concept to include. I think, you know, Star Wars is about good guys and bad guys. So this is not necessarily a story that always gets nuanced. It does sometimes in the spiritual components of the Force and about people turning to the dark side and turning to the light side. So it can't, Star Wars can get very, very nuanced, but you oftentimes do not see any nuance about the perception of the Empire. It's almost always, I mean, even in the, even in the crawls, the opening crawls are like the evil Empire, right? So the evil Galactic Empire. So there's not a lot of subtlety there. I did like seeing a character like Freck, who is not one of the, you know, older white Imperial officers, most of them being back in the day, that's what they were. Um, so seeing a character who is not that actually like the Empire and want to work with them, I think is a really interesting storyline that a lot of people will probably pass up. But I thought that was done really, really well. The tension between the Inquisitors, I think, is the best that we've seen yet. The fact that the fifth brother and Riva, the third sister, are really clashing over who's going to take the Grand Inquisitor's spot, I think, was well done. And it's good to see the, that, that there's some tension between that group of people. I enjoyed that quite a bit. And of course, I mean, it's always great to see Vader. And I'm going to spend a bulk of this show, near the tail end of the show, talking about Vader. And I think Vader could have been a little scarier in this episode. He's very brutal. He's very, very brutal. But I think he could have been a little scarier. Now, I loved Vader in this episode. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that something was done incorrectly with Vader. I'm not saying that. But I had some ideas that I wanted to run past you guys. So near the tail end of the show, we're going to get into that a little bit more. Um, the Leia character had some fantastic lines in this episode. The actress playing her is doing an amazing job. Um, and some of the interactions she has with Kenobi are fantastic. The fact that, that she is really frustrating to him just plays in the fact that he's already fearful and not very confident in himself. Really enjoyed those interactions. Now, a lot of people complained about the Riva character in terms of how she's written. Um, and I have talked about a little bit too about how like from a writing standpoint, that character is... Um, we, we need to see more of her background, of her backstory, of what's motivating her, why she's so angry, why there's vitriol. Um, I think that will probably come with time, and that would be great. It'd be great to see all of those things. But I do want to point out one part of the end of episode two into episode three, where Moses Ingram, who plays Riva, did such a good job. When she delivers the lines... At the end of episode two, which are repeated in episode three, the very beginning of episode three, Obi-Wan is thinking through her, like her, Reva, telling Obi-Wan that Anakin is still alive. And she does this Obi-Wan when she's hunting for him, you know, and she kind of says like, oh, you know, that Anakin's still alive and you didn't know that and stuff like that. I thought that those lines were delivered really, really well. And it's very creepy. And so when he's remembering those lines, I thought that was really, really well done on Moses' Moses' part for sure. Now, what are my complaints about um, episode two? Or I'm sorry, episode three. What are my complaints about episode three? I have very few of them, um, but there's a couple. 
Uh, and they're very, very minor. And they, I just bring them up just to say like, you know, let's just acknowledge that, that there are some things in there that aren't perfect and that's fine. Um, there was a moment uh, when Obi-Wan and Leia defeat the first round of stormtroopers, and they're at the gate. They're at the laser gate, basically. Um, and they're fending off Frick, and they fend off the stormtroopers. And there's a point where uh, Obi-Wan goes and shoots the gate so that they can, that they can you know, walk through the gate and disable the gate. And there's so much room on the two sides of that gate. There's so much room for two human human beings to walk around the gate. I thought it was so funny. They spent a lot of time like destroying the gate, which was cool. But it was like, you can just actually just walk around the corner and then like, leave it the way that it was. Um, I also thought it was interesting because the loader droids, uh, which I liked the the visual dynamic of that. In fact, their, their heads are really amazing. I don't know if that was done with a little bit of CG. Uh, I think it was, or if it was some of that was practical effects, but I really enjoyed that. But I think that um, those droids were maybe the most guy in a costume droids we've seen in Star Wars. I mean, th that, and that gives me, um, it gives me a lot of uh, confidence in the ability of an Anthony Daniels to play a droid and not look at all human. I mean, there are moments here and there where he does, but for the most part, Anthony Daniels embodies C-3PO. I thought these droids were, they seemed like a person in a costume more than most droids in the Star Wars universe do. And I found that kind of interesting. Um, again, was is that a big deal? Is that a big complaint? Like, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm still giving this show an eight and a half to nine out of 10 because I really, really liked it. Um, and then in in some of the, the writing elements of Vader that I'm going to get to later, I do think that there are some odd power dynamics at work. And this is true of any sort of storytelling that you can do. It's very difficult to maintain power levels in association with what's going on. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, something that the character could do in a previous episode or a previous story, and then the character can't do it in this instance, right? Then you can start to say like, well, what happened there? Why didn't Vader just do this? Or why didn't Vader just do that? So we'll get into that as we talk about a little bit more of the writing of Vader. But again, I'm going to be very positive about this show because I really, really enjoyed episode three for sure. Now, uh, before I get into some of the writing stuff with Vader, I thought that there was one really interesting line. Um, I've seen a few people on Twitter say that they really enjoyed this line, and I wanted to break this down a little bit more. There's a line where Obi-Wan says, only when the eyes are closed can you truly see. There was a quote that was on the wall, and even Leia asks him, like, see what? What do you mean? And I thought that line was worth talking about for a little bit because um, Star Wars is really good at giving us some lines that could have some more depth to them, some more meaning to them. And I think this is one of those lines. So from a Jedi perspective, I take this line to mean that the information given to you by the Force is more accurate than the information provided to you by your senses right? The force is the embodiment of what the universe is actually all about. The senses are a perception of the universe. And so what this is basically saying is when you are in touch with the force, uh, when your eyes are closed, those sensors are off. If your ears were closed, if your, you know, sense of touch or taste, if that was gone, 
you know, maybe you're a Jedi and you have COVID, you can't taste anything. If those things are gone, then you can rely on the force to give you information about um, how the, how the universe is really truly working. And if it's, if it's just you using your senses, sometimes what can happen with that is that your senses can sort of deceive you a little bit and you can put your brain can actually misinterpret what the senses are trying to tell you, or you may see an event in a different way than it should have been seen. You may hear of an event in a way that it shouldn't have been seen. How many times have you or I even you know, applying this to the real world, how, how, how often have you or I heard something, taken it out of context, and then thought it meant something very different than it really meant? But with, but if I think what this is saying is if we had the ability to use the force, we could really truly understand what it was that was trying to be communicated to us. I also feel like it's a little bit of a reference to Kanan Jarrus, uh, who I believe is in um, Rebels. Uh, and he is, if I'm not mistaken, blinded at one point in Rebels, and then operates not by seeing, but operating based off the force. And so kind of like Daredevil does in the Marvel universe. And I think this is actually could be a, a slight reference to him too. We got a slight reference to Quinlan Voss. This may be a little bit of a, it could be that, that Kanan actually wrote that on the wall because he actually has experience knowing that when you lose your sense of sight, that you would actually have the force to, to back you up. So I thought that was really interesting. We also know that um, when Obi-Wan trains Luke, with the he trains him with the blast shield down so that he, he actually has to feel through the force because his eyes will deceive him a little bit. His eyes will say, the droid is firing a blaster bolt at me, but the force will tell him this is where the blaster bolt is going to go. And so, you know, the eyes are almost too slow and the force is a lot faster. So there's another example of how this quote applied to the Star Wars universe would be really accurate. Um, the same is true of when Obi-Wan tells Luke to use the force rather than use his targeting computer during the trench run on the Death Star, right? Don't use, use your feelings, Luke, reach out with the force because that's going to give you a more accurate ability to aim, um, than will your targeting computer. So I've seen this quote resonating with some folks on Twitter. It obviously applies to the Star Wars universe. But does this apply to does this quote apply to us in real life? Can we take any value from this? Um, it might work for fictional Jedi in the Star Wars <laughs> universe, but um, what is the application for us as viewers? And because people are resonating with it, right? If people weren't resonating with it, I wouldn't take the time to talk about it. But people are resonating with it. So my take is that, um, like the Jedi do with the Force, there's this sense of mindfulness being aware of our surroundings in a different way, slowing down, processing life. For spiritual people, it might be a metaphor for getting insight from God or a God or the universe itself. Um, beyond that, I think there's a subtle nudge suggested in the quote that gets at something bigger. And that's that because our senses can give us a false impression of how the world actually works, we should question those things, right? So, I think it's a quote that actually does um, work in in the real world. Although I will say this. Sometimes if we're overly reliant upon the way we feel, we do need external stimuli to tell us that we're wrong. <laughs> so, for example, I'll give you I'll give you an example. I used just a second ago. I used an example where I said that you might hear somebody say something offhand and you might attribute it to you and you might take it the wrong way and you might feel like it's you know, not the, not something that was intended to be there. 
And you can start to go into a mindfulness moment and that, that mindfulness moment might help you out. But what we wouldn't want is that we wouldn't want to say, actually, no, what did the person really say? And what were they trying to convey? And, and if we just felt bad about ourselves that day, we might take that quote on as being bad, something bad about us, when in reality, that's not what was meant. And if we actually used our ears a little better, we could have understood that. So I think it's a really good quote for getting us involved into practices that are healthy um, from a standpoint of trying to understand the world around us. But I also think that we should also be aware of what our senses are telling us because sometimes our feelings can deceive us too. So both can be, both can be deceiving in a certain way, shape or form. So let me know what you think of that quote in the comments down below. Do you think that quote was really meaningful to you and how was it meaningful to you? Or was it something that you would have said like, no, that's some foolishness foolishness that the jedi would say do you take a han solo a new hope type of thing or do you go further deeper down into it i would like to know what you think in the comments and we just got a comment from um, orange grove 55 love this discussion this type of spiritual philosophical stuff is what really draws me into star wars you know what orange grove that's what i really like about star wars too and i will say i think i think that's why star wars resonates with so many people across so many religions is because they are exploring some of the things that we have to deal with as human beings. And the way that they do that is pretty artful because a lot of us can, a lot of us can gravitate towards it and chew on it for a bit and kind of try to understand where that's taking us. So thanks for, thanks for, thanks for showing up OG. It was great to talk to OG. Go back and listen to OG on uh, OG and Dre. We're on uh, the episode two of Obi-Wan Kenobi podcast and that was a great episode because we got to compare and contrast Riva to Kylo Ren a little bit in addition to just breaking down what we loved about the episode and maybe some of the things we struggled with so that was really fun um now let's get into the main part of what this show is supposed to be about because I was watching the show Vader is maybe as brutal as Vader has ever been on screen he's certainly the most vicious sadistic Vader that we've ever seen on screen. And I really enjoyed the Vader scenes, but as I watched it, I felt to myself, this is not the scariest I've ever seen Vader. I'm not more afraid of Vader seeing him in this context than I was seeing him in prior contexts that we've been shown in the past. Now, why is that? So as a, as a storyteller, as a writer, I have to think to myself, what about what happened and how my experience played out? Why was it different? Why was I scared of Vader in different settings than I was watching episode three? So I have a lot of thoughts on this and I'd like to dig into it a little bit deeper. So I hope you'll join me for this. Um, in the past, we have seen Vader brutally kill combatants. Now, this may be the first time we've ever seen him. Correct me if I'm wrong in the chat, but I think this might be the first time we've ever seen him killing and tormenting innocent bystanders just to build their fear of him up. Now, we know in the EU and in some of the other Star Wars materials that there have been Sith Lords that will cause people to fear them because they can almost grab some of that fear and use it to power the dark side in them. I have seen that before um, in Star Wars uh, Sith. Um, and that may be what Vader's doing here, maybe not what he's doing here, but... He's certainly trying to make everybody fearful of him as he walks through this small village. But what I found interesting as a viewer 
was that this Vader was not as scary to me personally watching. He was scarier to the characters on the screen, maybe, but less fear-inducing to me personally. So I asked myself this question. How do you write Vader or a character like him to be more frightening to the people watching, to the audience? You know, uh, the American Film Institute, AFI, they have Vader as like, I think he's the number one or number two. I think he's number one. The, the, the scariest villain of all time. And so this wasn't his scariest moment. So that makes me think like, well, how did we get a scarier Vader? How was he? This is before we've seen, you know, any of the any of the EU stuff. This is Vader was ranked at the number one spot years, decades ago. So what was it about Vader in those moments that made the audience so terrified? And and how did he show up here? And how do we manipulate our writing and storytelling to make characters like Vader scarier? So here's here's my here's my really basic take, and I'll explain. We'll externalize this. We'll compare and contrast, and we'll get really deep into this. But the one overriding solution I have to make Vader scarier, to make him a more frightening person, particularly for the audience, is to put Vader in tight spaces. Make Vader the most visually intimidating thing in the room or in the space. Now, you'll notice that was not done here because Vader's outside. He's not even in a constrained space. He's in a very open space. The planet, there's no time he's in a corridor or anything. He's in a very open space. So let's talk about when Vader has been the most intimidating for the audience by looking back through the catalog of Star Wars materials that he's appeared in. And we can talk through this a little bit. So You'll notice that in the original trilogy, he's almost always in small corridors. He's almost always the tallest person, except for maybe when Chewbacca's around. He's almost always the tallest, most imposing person in the room. He even stands when other people sit. There's a, there's the, the scene in, in A New Hope where he's standing and all the Imperial officers are sitting. This is right before he's about to choke, force choke. Is it Mahdi? I don't know if it's Mahdi, but he's sitting there with Tarkin and he force chokes the guy because the guy says that his... Uh, his his uh, devotion to that old religion is is kind of ridiculous, right? I'm I'm paraphrasing, but Vader's standing where everyone else is sitting. Now, the only time he's in a bigger, more open space is when the Emperor is present. Now, take note of that because that's interesting. Why is that? Because the Emperor is meant to command the larger space. The Emperor doesn't get his intimidation. He doesn't get his power of persuasion from being an intimidating visual figure. The Emperor, we were, were meant to think, whoa, the Emperor controls everything he needs to control just by being in the room. So there's a couple of examples of that. The throne room itself in uh, Return of the Jedi, when Luke walks in and there's a big battle. And, and of course, you know, Palpatine eventually has the two lightsabers on both um uh, both arms of his of his throne. That's a pretty big space. That's a pretty big space that that Vader is in at that point in time. But why is that the case? Because in that room, the Emperor is the biggest bad guy. The other time I can think of where Vader in the original trilogy is in a pretty open space is when he's awaiting the the arrival of the Emperor on the shuttle. 
And so the shuttle pulls in and they got all the stormtroopers lined up, all the officers lined up waiting to meet the emperor. It's a pretty big space. Well, why is it a pretty big space? Because the emperor is arriving and the emperor controls bigger spaces. And it's not the emperor's visual uh, stature that we're scared of. It's his intellect and the way that he can manipulate things. That's what makes him so intense. So when we see... Now, now, there is one other area where Vader is in a slightly more open space, but you'll notice that it's actually confined. So, the end of The Empire Strikes Back, this is when they're in, corridor, they're in tight corridors. We're not sure where Vader is. Luke's trying to hide from him. Uh, we're not sure. At every at, Luke turns around a corner, isn't sure he's going to see Vader, right? Terrifying. <laughs> it's really, really, really good scene. Now, at the end of that scene... Vader pushes Luke out onto a bridge, and that's when he chops off his hand. Luke loses his lightsaber. He's on the end. He's holding on to whatever that structure is. Now, you'll notice that's a bigger space, but what have they done? They've confined the bigger space, meaning that Luke only has two options. He's He's got Vader on one side. He's got a giant pit of Cloud City that he can fall into on the other side of him. So it's still a constrained space in terms of Vader is the biggest thing in the room. There's just a void that, that's there as well. So the bigger threat to Luke is Vader still in that, in that moment. And you'll notice that Vader seems very imposing because he takes up basically all of the bridge at that point in time. And Luke's stuck there. He can't get away from Vader. So let's compare and contrast what we just what I just broke down with those, those original trilogy scenes. And break that down in comparison to episode three of Kenobi. So episode three of Kenobi, this is the first time we've seen Vader out in the open. And I do think that that does detract a little bit from the fear that the audience feels. Now, why is that? Let's cover this. I think there's two main points here. One, Vader is not fast. Now, could Vader use force speed and become faster? Yeah. He totally could. But we do not generally see Vader sprinting around. <laughs> what makes him scary is that he has command of the force where he can sense and predict where his prey is headed and or hiding, which we saw in The Empire Strikes Back. So he doesn't need to be fast. He doesn't need to be fast. It's just like Luke predicting the the training drone and the firing the blaster bolts. He's gonna, the force is going to tell him where to go. The same is true of Vader. He's using the dark side to be like, where are these people that I'm searching for? So he doesn't really need to be fast. Therefore, if you put him in an open space, it does kind of feel like his prey could just pick a direction and run, run away from him and just keep running in that direction. But in a closed space, this is my third day of podcasting. So you're hearing my voice. <laughs> my voice is breaking already. But in a closed space, Vader could be around any corner. In a closed space, like he is in The Empire Strikes Back, like he is in A New Hope, in the beginning of A New Hope, where he's in the corridors when they're taking over um, the Tantive for Leia's ship that she's using to escape. In that closed space, Vader could be around any corner. And that's terrifying. Um, Rogue One has one of the most terrifying Darth Vader scenes in the history of Vader. He's in a closed space. 
You can't get away from him. He, doors are closing around you. He's trapping you. Your sense of claustrophobia of being in a small room with Vader is insane. So the second reason, because it just seems like if you're in an open space, Vader's not that fast, and you can maybe you could get away from him. We all know he could use force speed, but that's would be actually make him probably a little less intimidating because he's just not that kind of character. But when there are large things in the vicinity of Vader, in this case, we have it's a mining colony that we're in, in, in Obi-Wan episode three. He's in a mining colony. There's big machinery. There's buildings as he's walking down the street. When there are large things around him, Vader now looks smaller. He no longer fills the space. His physicality becomes less frightening. We're less claustrophobic. Now what we're scared of with Vader is we are scared that he will pick on us, right? But that's normal bully behavior. The psychological component of him being around any corner and you stuck in a small space with him is far more, far more terrifying. So like I said in Rogue One, that corridor scene is terrifying because we're trapped in the corridor with Vader. <laughs> he's the biggest thing in that room and he's super powered. So he has all the same powers that he uses here in Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 3. He's super powered. But in that corridor, there's no escaping him. In the corridor, we are we are toast. Um, and I talked about Empire Strikes Back too in Cloud City where, where Vader is hunting Luke. He's imposing. He could be around the next corner when he's on the bridge. It's Luke's only escape route that we can see, but he's he's in front of Luke. He's he's the gate that Luke has to get past. Instead, Luke has to, you know, fall back into the void. You'll notice that in A New Hope, Vader lifts the rebel officer off his feet. It's one of the first times we meet Vader. He's he's got the guy in a in a chokehold, lifting him off his feet. The guy's holding his neck. And then when Le when Leia comes up, Leia's looking way up at him. He's looking way down at Leia. David Prowse in that costume was a huge intimidating guy. Vader is very imposing in those moments. We do not want to be in a room <laughs> with Vader. You don't want to be in an enclosed space with Vader. You don't want to because he's 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 you know he's the he's the thing that you're like I'm not even going to have time to get away from this guy, and I'm within range of his force abilities. He's going to use this, the force on me anytime he wants to. Now. There's another thing when you're telling a story about a character like Vader that helps with continuity and power dynamics. If you put these imposing, large, slow, but menacing figures with lots of power, if you put them in a tight space, it makes continuity and power dynamics easier to handle from a storytelling perspective. So in the final moments of episode three, while Vader is, you know, basically toying with Obi-Wan and making him suffer, he's dragging him through the fire. Um, you know, he's 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 really he's really playing upon Obi-Wan's already fearful nature, which I talked about earlier. So this is really powerful. As that's happening. He extinguishes all the fire. He's still messing with Obi-Wan. But then Indira's character, which by the way, I can't remember her name. I, I was looking for her name and I could not find it. But Indira's character reignites the fire between Vader and Obi-Wan. She shoots a gun, explodes 
like whatever it is, fuel fuel cell or something, and then the fire is back, right? Well, here's the problem. We just saw Vader use the force to pull Obi-Wan through the flames. And before that, he was tormenting villagers from like, you know, dozens of feet away, several dozens of feet away. And so there's two things in that moment that make the power dynamics of that scene a little awkward because Indira is thinking, I'm going to put fire between Vader and Obi-Wan so that Obi-Wan can escape. The problem with that is we just saw that when Obi-Wan was on the other side of the fire, Vader pulled him through the fire with, with a force pull. So we also know that Vader can use force to jump anytime he wants to. He, Vader can just jump over that fire and grab Obi-Wan again. Obi-Wan can't move very fast. And so when the droid comes over, when the, um, the loader droid comes over and grabs Obi-Wan and takes him off, and Vader kind of just watches him go, the Inquisitors are like, oh, this is, this is horrible. Now, it is possible. It is possible that Reva had messaged Vader and said, don't worry about Obi-Wan because I've got... I've got the girl, so he's going to have to try and come back. We're going to get him another time. That is very possible. But from a power dynamics on screen standpoint, that scene is a little bit awkward because Vader could have easily just pulled Obi-Wan back to him. He could have easily jumped over the force, jumped over the fire. He, let's face it. He could have walked through the fire if he really wanted to. I'm sure that I'm sure his suit is somewhat flame retardant that he could walk through and, and handle that. So the difference is that in a large space, Vader's powers are difficult to define. In fact, we've seen Vader. Um, well, we've at least seen some of the Sith users. I can't remember this if this was Vader or another, another Sith user, if it was Plagueis or uh, Palpatine or something. But we've heard of, we know the concept of Sith Force users like smashing enemy capital ships together in space, right? Um that's another power dynamic that makes everything in the universe a little bit odd because you're going like, well, why can't they use that level of force power in this other scenario? And so that's another reason why not to write those kinds of characters, those super powered characters into large spaces. You can do it every once in a while, have them smash some capital ships together or something. Um, but in general, if you want to make it so that their power seems a little bit more reduced, or at least at least a little bit more constrained is a, is a better way of saying it. They still have the power. They just can't use it as much because they're in a smaller space. And so therefore, why would you smash two things like that together? In Empire Strikes Back, Vader's constantly pulling stuff off the wall and throwing it at Luke. Makes sense because they're in a small space, right? Um, but when he's in a big space, it's like, okay, well, he could do... Couldn't he just about do anything? <laughs> he, could, he could just take giant boulders and throw them down on Obi-Wan if he wanted to. So I think the power dynamics and our intimidation factor mean that if we're writing characters like Vader, who tend to be these large, imposing characters who are incredibly frightening and, and, and we look up at them and they're scary as opposed to looking down at them, then I think that writing those characters into tight spaces is a really good way of inducing fear in the audience. So um, let me just... Let me just uh, capitalize on a couple of these a couple of these points if we're thinking about applying this to our own storytelling one being in the tight in a tight space if we're the audience 
is scary. You'll notice that um, a lot of times Vader is filmed from below because we're using forced perspective to make him look even bigger. So a lot of times, especially in the small spaces, we're looking at Vader as if he's above us from the camera perspective, from the audience's perspective. So being in that tight space allows us to do that. As soon as you bring Vader out into a big space, it's much easier to look down, have a camera look down so we can see more of the terrain. And all of a sudden, we're not looking up at him anymore. He looks smaller in the space that we that we see him in. It's great when you, if you have a different character like Emperor Palpatine that you want to showcase the differences between them. But it maybe doesn't work as well if Palpatine is absent in this case. Tight spaces also mean that we maybe not don't have an easy ability to escape. So if you're the audience, you're going to have to watch how this plays off, right? Now we get fearful. We're like, oh my gosh, how is this going to play out? We also probably don't have anywhere to run to. So our instinct is like, oh man, I may, maybe I better hide from this. I better hide from this imposing character. And finally, you can make it seem like the villain, in this case, Vader, knows exactly where their prey is going to run to or going to hide. So that also builds tension. And when you and if they are hiding, if the character is hiding on screen, a lot of times this happens in Star Wars. A lot of times it happens in horror movies as well. We get a we get the perspective of the person hiding. And the person hiding is looking out or around a corner at the the big bad, the evil thing that's chasing them. And that is a way to induce fear in the audience as well. Because like, what's gonna happen? I feel like I'm this character, and that Vader is or whoever other character. Um, is hunting me down. So I think that that's really cool too. So there you go. I think storytellers can use all of those same rules, spatial conformity, especially to induce fear and trepidation in the audience. Obviously this was, um, so let me just really quickly say that that was not done in episode three of Kenobi. And instead what they did was they showed us a different side of Vader that we hadn't particularly seen before. And that was him just brutally torturing innocent bystanders that did not have a dog in the fight between him and, and Obi-Wan. And, um, and that's how they chose to make Vader scarier. But I think that that actually is more of, it's less fear inducing for us as the audience. And it is more of us going like, Oh wow, he's evil, right? Like it can tell us that, but it doesn't necessarily make us fear him more. Cause I don't think we, you know, when he's up front and up close and he's coming towards us, it almost seems like, we're in the corridor with Luke or we're in the corridor with Leia. But when he's far away on the screen and he's doing these things, I feel like we, that distance removes some of that fear, but I want to, I want to know what you think. What do you think would make Vader seem more frightening? Do you think that this was one of the most terrifying Vader scenes that you've seen? It was certainly a very cool Vader scene, but was he actually as scary? Was he as scary as you've seen him before? My personal take is that the scariest that we've ever seen Vader in the history of Star Wars, the scariest we've ever seen Vader is when he appears in Rogue One. But I want to know what you think. Leave me a comment down below and let me know your thoughts on the scariest Vader. And if you were going to try to make Vader scarier, what kind of situations would you put him in? How would you write that character differently? I'm very interested in hearing what you have to say. Let me plug my own story again very quickly because I'd love for you to read or listen to it. If you're a fan of steampunk fantasy, Western mashups, it's a lot of mashup. <laughs> steampunk fantasy and Western mashups we call them weird westerns, by the way. Then pick up a copy of our full cast audiobook, Death of a Bounty Hunter. It's about a desperate sheriff who will do anything to save his daughter 
and a bounty hunter who realizes he can no longer run from the truth. A link to Death of a Bounty Hunter will be in the description. Check it out at deathofabountyhunter.com. Please support the show by picking up a copy. And that is it for today's show. The three days in a row of Kenobi. Now we just get to wait till episode four. I will have some shows on Stranger Things as well. But uh, if you have a question that you'd like for me to cover, whether it's with Kenobi or whether it's with Stranger Things, please leave me a comment or shoot me an email at hi at reclamationsociety.org. That is hi at reclamationsociety.org. I know it's a little bit of a long email address. Um, I'd love to include your questions or topics in the future if possible. So please reach out to me over there and do that. New episodes of the Story Geeks show drop every week, both on YouTube and your preferred podcast provider. Wednesday is the official release date, but as you saw this week, I did three shows in a row. So I record content throughout the week. You almost never know when I'm going to be recording content. So make sure you're subscribed to get notified of all the latest shows. You can subscribe to the Story Geeks show on our YouTube channel or on your preferred podcast provider. Thanks for watching. Next week, I will have more coverage on Obi-Wan Kenobi, Episode 4. Plus, I will be ready, I'll be working on Stranger Things Season 4 content as well. I actually I prefer Stranger Things Season 4 to Kenobi thus far. Now, granted, I've finished Stranger Things Season 4, and I have not finished Kenobi yet, so we'll see how that shakes out over time, but I loved Stranger Things Season 4. So stay tuned for all of that, and I will see you on the next show.